0: Why shouldn't we just give up all carbohydrates? Well, first of all, they're tasty, and there probably is no reason for everybody to do so. For people without diabetes, just focusing on reducing the processed carbohydrates will be sufficient. In general, we want the maximum of benefit with the minimum of deprivation.
1: That was Dr. David Ludwig, an endocrinologist at Boston Children's Hospital and professor at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Ludwig is an expert on diet and metabolism, weight, and risk for chronic disease. You're listening to Weight Matters, where we unpack the science behind our weight, why it matters, and the effects it has on our health, psychology, and society. This season, join Drs. Louis Aroni and Catherine Saunders, leading experts in the field of obesity medicine and co-founders of IntelliHealth as they tackle the many ways weight impacts our broader health, and along with experts in the field, explore innovative strategies for preventing and treating obesity. In this episode, Dr. Ludwig explains the science behind the carbohydrate-insulin model, which is the subject of a recent paper he wrote with Dr. Aroni. Dr. Ludwig also offers practical advice for individuals looking to reduce their carbohydrate intake and he discusses his passion for making healthy foods more accessible through public policy advocacy. We're glad to have you
2: along for this journey. There's a lot to discuss, so let's dive in. Welcome to our next episode of Weight Matters. Our guest today is Dr. David Ludwig, an endocrinologist at Boston Children's Hospital and professor at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Ludwig is an expert on diet and metabolism, body weight, and risk for chronic disease. He recently authored, along with Dr. Aroni, a groundbreaking paper on the carbohydrate insulin model. We're thrilled to have him join us to discuss this topic. Hi, Dr. Ludwig. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. We would love to start by hearing a little bit about this carbohydrate insulin model. If you can explain to our listeners what this means and and why it's so important. Sure. Well,
0: the usual way of thinking about obesity is that it's simply a problem of energy balance. Too many calories in, not enough calories out. So the simple solution is, we've heard it a thousand times, eat less, move more. And while Doing so will produce weight loss. That's just a law of physics of energy conservation. The unescapable fact is that most people, even if they can lose weight temporarily, will gain it back in a few weeks or months. The body isn't a passive energy storage depot. It's a dynamic organism that fights back against calorie restriction. So we know that when you cut back calories or you try to burn off more calories with exercise, typically we get hungry. And hunger isn't just a fleeting feeling, it's a primal biological signal that your body wants more fuel. Many people have trouble ignoring hunger just from lunch to dinner, if you look at all the snacking that goes on around us. So how are we supposed to ignore our hunger, not just for a day or weeks, but months or years? And for those few very disciplined people who can, uh, the body has other tricks to get us to eat more and to change its calorie balance, most notably by slowing down metabolism. So as we continue to lose weight and metabolism slows down, we need fewer and fewer calories to keep the weight going off even as our hunger and desire for those calories increase. And we see the results, that the long-term treatment for obesity has extraordinarily poor outcomes. So the carbohydrate-insulin model is proposing that we have got it backwards. And if we try to ignore our hunger, it slows down metabolism. And unless we understand this alternative view of cause and effect— Treatment approaches will be at best symptomatic and not effective over the long term.
3: So David, how does carbohydrate play a role? I I know the answer, by the way, but how (laughs) would you tell our listeners carbohydrate plays a critical role in in this process?
0: Okay, well, I I hope you would, uh, Lou, because you were a (laughs) co-author on our paper, in AJCN. And by the way, I'll just mention that uh, your audience can freely download the paper. It's in the December issue of American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Uh, We paid the exorbitant open access fees. So anybody can just download the paper, go to the website and read the article themselves. So let's walk through what the model suggests. And I want to point out, this is a model. It's a scientific model. It's not. We're not proposing it as the final answer. The purpose of a model is to inform thinking and help guide new research so that we can develop a bigger understanding of this intractable problem of obesity. So according to the carbohydrate insulin model, the processed carbohydrates that flooded our diet, especially during the low-fat years, remember when 20, 30 years ago, we were told that basically all fats are fattening and unhealthy, and basically we we should be eating a whole range of carbohydrates, including many processed ones, 6 to 11 servings of starchy food at the base of the food guide pyramid, so that these processed carbohydrates digest very quickly into glucose and raise blood sugar literally minutes after eating it. and People can try this for themselves. Take a bagel. Bagels usually don't have sugar in the recipe. Chew it really well. Mix it with saliva. And notice what happens to the taste. It starts to get sweet. And that's sugar popping off of the starch in the bagel under the weak effects of digestive enzymes in the mouth. By the time that bagel hits the more powerful enzymes lower down in the digestive tract, it literally melts into glucose. Blood sugar shoots much higher than it would with any other kinds of foods. And that causes an outpouring of the hormone insulin. Now we call insulin the miracle grow for your fat cells, just not the sort (laughs) of miracle you want happening in your body. So we know that too much insulin for someone with diabetes promotes hunger, fat storage, and weight gain. States genetic mouse models where the animal makes too much insulin, that animal will tend to become obese. And conversely, if you can lower Insulin production, the animal is resistant to obesity, even under conditions that would make a normal mouse fat. So, this outpouring of insulin after all of these high carbohydrates that we eat programs fat cells to take in and hold on to too many calories. And that insulin also restrains these fat cells from releasing those calories. You know, the fat in fat cells is our high octane fuel that will run our metabolism. But with too much insulin, These calories get locked up in fat cells. They're too few for the rest of the body. And that's why we get hungry. And that's why our metabolism slows down. So simply cutting back calories doesn't address the problem at the source, which is that, like a turnstile, the calories are being directed more into storage than into metabolism, such as in the muscle, liver, and elsewhere in the body. So we have to address that problem eating foods that are lower insulin stimulating. And if we do, the body will take care of calorie balance on its own. Thank you for
2: explaining that so beautifully, Dr. Ludwig. What is your opinion about differences among carbohydrates? Are all carbs bad or is there a certain amount, a certain number of grams
0: of carbs above which it's problematic? Right. Great question. Well, The carbohydrate insulin model focuses on something called glycemic load, which reflects not just the amount of carbohydrate, but how rapidly it's digested. And uh, so for most people, you know, it's entirely possible to eat plenty of carbohydrate and maintain a healthy weight, as long as that carbohydrate is more natural, less processed and slower digesting. What are we talking about? White bread, white rice, potato products, sugary breakfast cereals and of course, sugar-sweetened beverages. Carbohydrate isn't the only component of diet that affects insulin secretion. Protein does as well. But what protein does is also raise the antidote to insulin, which is glucagon. Glucagon is a hormone that's made by cells right next to insulin in the pancreas. And glucagon opposes the action of insulin, whereas insulin stores calories. Glucagon helps the body pull calories out of storage and make it available for metabolism. So protein is uh, fine and actually to be encouraged, even though it raises insulin, it also raises glucagon. And then the third major component, fats, are really neutral. Fats don't raise these hormones in the pancreas at all. And so by substituting processed carbohydrates for proteins and fats, we can produce a a hormonal state in the body, which we believe is going to naturally help the fat cells release those pent-up calories. When that happens, people will feel more energetic, less hunger, and you'll lose weight with the body's cooperation rather than with the body kicking and screaming.
3: So David, if you think about it, why don't people just not eat carbs? You know, so I'm going to tell people don't eat starch, don't eat sugar. Why don't they just lose weight? by doing that? There's no biological
0: reason why we have to eat carbohydrates. In fact, the human requirement for carbohydrate is basically zero at virtually all stages of life. How do we know this? Because there are many populations, um, hunter-gatherer populations, especially during the Ice Ages. And more recently, the Native American of the Great Plains, Laplanders, the Inuits, who would have no access to plant products for nine or 10 months a year. And plant products are virtually the only source of carbohydrate. And yet these populations were healthy. They had low rates of heart disease. Women were fertile. They were able to give birth to healthy children and breastfeed. So there is no human requirement for carbohydrate and very low carbohydrate diets. The so-called ketogenic diet looks really attractive for diabetes and for other metabolic conditions. It's, in fact, been used for a century to treat children with otherwise intractable epilepsy. But why shouldn't we just give up all carbohydrates? Well, first of all, they're tasty, and there probably is no reason for everybody to do so. Uh, For people without diabetes, just focusing on reducing the processed carbohydrates will be sufficient. In general, we want the maximum of benefit with a minimum of deprivation. So many carbohydrates are tasty, they're full of all sorts of nutritious micronutrients, and phytochemicals, and can be health-promoting for most people. I think that the special situation which benefits the most from a more severe approach is diabetes. Diabetes is by definition a condition in which the body can't tolerate carbohydrate it's defined as carbohydrate intolerance when you eat carbohydrate your blood sugar runs too high so I think conceptually speaking at least at first people with diabetes might do well with a, a very low or carbohydrate or ketogenic diet
2: So we found that among our patients, it's very, very, very hard for so many of them to reduce their carbs. So we're very into figuring out strategies to make this doable. And as we talked about, you know, losing weight is easier than maintaining. So we really need to figure out ways of eating that are sustainable for people where they don't feel like they're overly restricted and on a diet. So one of the strategies we talk about is food order, specifically eating protein before carbs to prevent glucose fluctuations and prevent the fluctuations of other hormones. But something else that we talk to our patients about is really having a high protein breakfast, which is something that you're a big advocate of. I often quote your study where you looked at the difference among three different breakfasts, a very highly processed oatmeal, a steel cut oats and eggs, and showed that even hours and hours and hours after breakfast, when you might think that the effect of breakfast is long gone, these changes in our appetite and thinking about food and how much we're eating are really significant so that if you have a high glycemic index breakfast, you tend to think about food more, eat more that many hours later. Is this something that you're still a big proponent of? Is there anything new in this area that you've discovered that we could share with people
0: who are trying to lose weight? The idea there is that by eating protein at the beginning of a meal... You stimulate a little bit of insulin and a little bit of glucagon, and you slow down gastric emptying. So the carbohydrate at the end does not hit an empty stomach, doesn't blast into the bloodstream as quickly. And that can be a very potent effect. So um, sure, absolutely. I practice that myself. So uh, I'll just give you my own personal approach these days, which now that I'm getting into midlife, metabolism shifts. and I found it easier to maintain a healthy weight with carbohydrate earlier in life. But now that I'm older, um, I find that intermittent fasting or specifically time-restricted eating is a very powerful approach which can synergize with the carbohydrate insulin model. And I'm not recommending this for everybody. And I I think to start off with, we just want to reduce the processed carbohydrates and help adapt the body to a little more fat, which will take the edge off the extremes, the surges and the crashes in blood sugar that drive hunger and overeating. But in terms of time-restricted eating, what people typically do is just have very strong coffee, if you can tolerate it, no sugar in the morning. And that coffee, and specifically caffeine, is a wonderful drug for fat cells. It causes them to open their doors and release calories, Caffeine is highly lipolytic. Lipolytic means that the fat cells are releasing lipids. And so when you have coffee first in the morning, there's oftentimes no hunger for the next four or five hours. I could never skip breakfast in the past. I'd just get too hungry and wouldn't be able to concentrate. But with strong coffee in the morning, I can comfortably go to noon or 1 p.m. without eating. I eat a low-carbohydrate, high-fat, high-protein lunch. And then for my second meal at dinner, I eat whatever I want, which includes carbohydrates, but those are at the end of the meal to take advantage of the protein-first mechanism.
3: Right, that's a great set of recommendations that uh, I think are very practical. You know, I think many people can follow that advice. Uh, Coffee, maybe a protein for breakfast if you can't get through to lunch, and then uh, a low-carb lunch and then dinner. I think that we're seeing more and more of that where, in a sense, it looks to me like eating no carbs or very low carbs is almost like fasting. It's similar metabolically to fasting. What what do you think about that idea?
0: Yeah. uh, Fat is really neutral to the gut hormones for the most part. They have minor effects. But It's the hormones, insulin and glucagon and some related hormones, which we know as incretins and and others, that tell the body to shift metabolism. So if you're eating foods that slip by these hormones, high-fat foods that slip by these hormones unnoticed, then the body, in effect, stays in a sort of a fasting state. Protein does have effects on the hormones, although not as potently on insulin, which is the big concern at least from the perspective of the carbohydrate insulin model. And I want to bring this back to a a point that Catherine made about how easy or hard it is to stick to a particular recommendation for long-term weight management. I've seen thousands of patients in my clinical career, and I think the very hardest thing for anybody to do is to cut calories and ignore hunger. You know That's fighting your body, and it's a setup for failure, even for the most disciplined people. Conversely, it's easy to follow a diet if it's leading you to feel better, if it's removing symptoms of a disease you might have, such as diabetes, sleep apnea, musculoskeletal problems. If a way of eating is le- leading you to feel better, fewer symptoms, more energy. And remember that a low-carbohydrate diet can be delicious, rich with all sorts of Luscious high-fat foods, nuts and nut butters, full-fat dairy, rich sauces and spreads, you know, avocado, olive oil, dark chocolate. So if you can eat this luscious diet with relatively less focus on calorie restriction and feel better, then I think we have a recipe for long-term compliance. And that can get adjusted and calibrated based on an individual's personal preferences, social and cultural needs, you know, the family environment – economic uh, you know, factors. You know, some of these foods are more expensive, admittedly. But there's plenty of room to calibrate based on an approach that works with rather than against the body and expects people to ignore their hunger long term.
2: This is great. And I guess easier for you to say we know that your wife is a chef. So (laughs) I'm sure you you don't have such a hard time eating, you know, in a delicious way. But for other people, I guess it's not so easy. We have many people who who really have a hard time even cutting down carbs a little bit. So we talk about different strategies to make things easier. We talked to Lou Cantley in a previous episode on the podcast, and we were specifically talking to him about his research on fructose. And he said that he's found that it takes about six weeks to really cut out fructose. And at that point, after six weeks, your body just doesn't want it so much anymore. Do you find that with carbs in general, there's sort of a period of time or a strategy almost to kind of detox or not have carbs in in some way that then gets people through this barrier to then have an easier time following
0: this? There's absolutely an adaptive process especially if one goes all the way to a ketogenic diet. Remember, metabolism for most people are dependent upon carbohydrate, and the brain is critically dependent upon it on a normal, conventional high-carbohydrate diet. If you shut off the carbohydrates, the body is perfectly prepared to adapt by increasing fat burning and then ultimately releasing ketones, which are a great fuel for the brain, which can take the place of glucose. But that process takes a few weeks, which I think is the obvious problem with these short two-week metabolic ward studies that typically make low-carbohydrate diets look bad. Let's do a quick thought experiment. Let's say you took overweight middle-aged sedentary men and suddenly put them into a military-style boot camp where they were doing track and field, climbing fences, you know, vigorous combat sports 6-8 hours a day, after a week or two they would probably feel miserable, sore, tired, their muscles would be inflamed. If you looked at looked at them in a week or two, you'd say, "Oh, obviously exercise is bad for your health and let's not do it." Well, the obvious fallacy is that you just need to do the study a little longer. And if you came back after six or eight weeks, you'd realize they'd lost weight, their fitness has improved, and they're feeling great. We know that the body takes a few weeks to adapt to changes in carbohydrate, especially major changes. So we need studies that go longer, at least a month, to see meaningful chronic effects. And if you were putting this process into effect yourself – Either be prepared for what they call the keto flu, where for a few weeks, you're not feeling so good, take it easy, cut back your physical activity level, or walk into it more slowly. There's no reason for most people to jump right into a ketogenic diet. Begin to adapt the body by cutting back on the processed carbohydrates and still have plenty of fruits and vegetables and legumes, maybe a bit of whole grains. For many people, that might be enough to jumpstart weight loss and help them feel better. If you want to go further, then after a few weeks, you can begin to cut back total carbohydrates more. Um, If you get down to the ketogenic levels, I should point out, uh, you need expert guidance, either a dietitian or a doctor who's familiar with the challenges of a ketogenic diet to make sure you get the right micronutrients and the right other kinds of support.
3: So, David, next week, our guest is going to be Dr. Sam Klein. I know you know well, and Dr. Klein does not believe in the carbohydrate insulin model. What would you like to say? So you get the first dibs on, on comments.
0: The first thing I'd like to say to Sam, um, I hope you have a good conversation and that uh, we look forward to a you know, a rigorous collegial debate. You know, the, the, the point of scientific models isn't to believe in them or not. We've been calorie counting and restricting following low-calorie and low-carbohydrate diets for the better part of a century. And every time we look, every year, the prevalence of obesity keeps going up and up. At a certain point, we need to open our minds to the possibility that it isn't just the food industry's fault for not making the right foods, or the patient's fault for not following what we're recommending. But perhaps the problem is with the paradigm itself. Now, there's support for the carbohydrate insulin model dating back a century. The precepts of it are obvious in some other conditions. I'd like to use the example of an adolescent growth spurt. A 14-year-old boy or girl during their growth spurt will get really hungry and eat hundreds or a thousand calories more than they used to and they're growing really fast. But which comes first? Does the overeating make them grow faster? Or does the rapid growth with the deposition of those calories into body tissue make the adolescent hungry and eat more? Well, it's obviously the latter. And how do we know that? Because neither you, Lou, nor I are going to grow any taller no matter how much we eat. So in the case of an adolescent growth spurt, it's obvious that the process of growing can drive hunger. In the case of a pregnant woman, it's the same. The growing fetus makes the woman hungrier and eat more. And we're proposing that when fat cells are triggered to store too many calories, that it's driving hunger. And that unless we consider that possibility, we're going to miss a key driver, which will make the burden of weight loss much harder for the patient. It's a hypothesis. And I would suggest that all sides of the debate, keep an open mind and engage in collegial discourse because we have a an intractable problem that needs new thinking.
2: That makes a lot of sense. And we look forward to, to many future debates on this subject. Where do you think that artificial sweetener and alcohol play into
0: this? Well, these are very separate questions, although um, <laughs> like one could tie them into the carbohydrate insulin model indirectly. So artificial sweeteners by definition, don't have calories or any significant amount of calories. And for the most part, they don't trigger insulin or the other gut hormones, although there can be slight effects, something called the cerebral phase of digestion. Just when you think about foods or when you start to taste something sweet, it can produce some hormonal changes. But the clinical trials are really clear, and we've done one of these Uh, we published in New England Journal of Medicine in 2012, that by switching from sugary beverages to artificially sweetened beverages or unsweetened beverages, people lose weight. And we have another supportive study in the Journal of the American Heart Association out just last year. Uh, but that doesn't answer the question as to whether artificially sweetened beverages may subtly have adverse effects over the long term compared to the beverages we would have consumed throughout our evolution and mainly water. And for that, we're going to need more study. So I basically consider the artificially sweetened diet beverages as transitional products.
3: That's great advice. What else do you think our listeners would want to know about the research that you've done over the years? I mean, you've been one of the leaders in the field. I love your work and the recommendations that have come from it. But can you pick out a couple of points that our listeners would find really interesting or perhaps surprising about your research?
0: I think the overall challenge that I've and my group has tried to address is the notion that calories, that food independent of their calories – can affect hormones and metabolism in fundamental ways, ways that you can't assess just by by reading a, a calorie label on a package. And the, these effects, which include the expression of genes throughout the body, might have everything to do with why two people with the same genetic risk for obesity, that one person is struggling with their weight, feels miserable on a diet and loses a few pounds and then gains back twice as many. Whereas the other person finds it easy to keep the weight off and starts feeling better and enjoying reduced risk for chronic disease. My work over, over the years and work from your group and many others, suggests that the nature of the calories, not just how many, is a fundamental driver, both body weight control and overall well-being. And that, unfortunately, the calorie in, calorie out energy balance model, as promoted by the government, the food industry, and many nutrition professionals, I think has distracted us from these critical biological effects of food. And that by rediscovering some of this knowledge some of it is just folk wisdom you know i mean our grandmothers our great grandmothers would know that a, a donut and an apple are going to affect the body differently even if they have the same number of calories and so that by rediscovering some of this basic wisdom that we can inform a more effective long-term approach to obesity
2: Thank you for framing it that way. That's so helpful because so, so many people who come and see us are still big into calorie counting and, and, shifting the thoughts about this can be very difficult. I want to shift gear a little bit into talking about public policy and advocacy. I know that you're a big advocate for policy changes to improve the food environment. You know, for us, we're we're on the other side of this. We're we're treating obesity after it develops. We're helping people lose weight. But a huge part of this and, and what's more important to really prevent obesity is, you know, policy changes and you know, really addressing it on that side. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the work uh, you're doing
0: in this area? Well, let me just step back a little bit and address the big question, which is that why is it you know so difficult to maintain a, a diet? Even people on both sides of the debate about the energy balance model or the carbohydrate insulin model would agree about three fourths of the foods with regard to their healthfulness or unhealthfulness. Why is it that a healthful diet is expensive, inconvenient, and possibly inaccessible for for some people, whereas these highly processed, low-quality nutrition foods pervade the inner city, the rural communities, and make it really hard for people who are already nutritionally compromised or already at risk for diet-related diseases? to do the sorts of things that you would recommend in your clinic? Well, you know, this isn't just a question of personal responsibility. Policies from the government going back more than 50 years have helped to create a commodity-based food supply that put the priority on calories and profits over food quality. Now, it's not just commodity supports. This stage of the game commodity supports have a relatively little role but we've created a whole food distribution system with incentives and penalties that has resulted in the nutritional disaster we call the food supply today yes it's safe from a microbiological perspective you'll eat it and you'll you'll unlikely get acute food poisoning which i'm not saying you know isn't important But from a chronic disease prevention perspective, it's a disaster. And just as government policies and investments helped create this problem, I think government policies and investments can help solve the problem. This isn't socialism, this is enlightened capitalism. We want a supply and demand market that incentivizes food manufacturers to produce more healthful foods and helps people afford those foods.
3: Yeah, that is really an important point, trying to figure out how to make these kinds of foods more available, lower in price, because when you look at the kinds of food you're talking about that are more accessible, they're cheaper, and they are potentially what some people have called addictive, that high-carb, high-fat combination foods like potato chips. You can't eat just one because you can't eat just one. Uh, There are physiological reasons why that may occur. Do you think that the whole idea of sugar and carbs being addictive is on target? The notion of food addiction is
0: provocative and for obvious reasons, because we need to eat. Nobody needs alcohol or tobacco or cocaine to live, but we need food to eat. And so, you know, some substance abuse specialists might not like the concept being extended to food. But nevertheless, uh, as an editor at AJCN, I oversaw an article series in the format Great Debates in Nutrition, on food addiction. And we had two experts going back and forth on that particular question. We've also done in our center some studies that inform that question. We looked after two milkshakes, um, one with fast digesting carbohydrate, the other with slow digesting or low glycemic index carbohydrate. Same calories, same total carbohydrate amount, but just one digesting faster, raising insulin more. We looked at what happens in the brain using what's called functional magnetic resonance imaging. You can see the specific brain areas that activate or get quiet. And we found that after the fast digesting high glycemic index milkshake, a part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, so that's considered ground zero for the classic addictions like, like cocaine or alcoholism, that that brain center lit up after the high glycemic index milkshake, but not after the low glycemic index milkshake. Very strong and consistent finding. It applied to every single participant in our study, which is very unusual that we didn't see any variation in that effect. So it does raise the possibility that fast digesting processed carbohydrates are hijacking pleasure and reward systems in the brain that could produce something akin to addiction. And lastly, I'll say there are virtually no pure fat addictive foods. I mean, butter, if you ask somebody what's tastier, white bread or butter, many people will say the butter. But who sits down and eats a quarter pound stick of butter just plain? That rarely happens. And you'd have to have a a florid eating disorder for that to happen. Whereas it's very easy to overeat on bread or fat-free pretzels, fat-free popcorn, sugary beverages, of course, are fat-free. So it's easy to overeat and get this addictive type response on pure carbohydrate foods. It's very difficult for that to happen on pure fat foods. And we think that the carbohydrate insulin model provides a, a compelling explanation for why that would be.
3: So many of our listeners are thinking about going on a diet and they're beginning a weight loss journey, what would you recommend as a first step?
0: Uh, check out my friends Catherine and Lou for uh, excellent uh, <laughs> clinical guidance, um, knowledgeable and compassionate care. No, you know, um, I think we, you do obesity, especially if there are complications, diabetes, sleep apnea, fatty liver you know, you need guidance. Of course, you want to find if you're just like if you're going to be taking a trip down the Amazon, you want to find a guide who's experienced, who's been around the corner and who knows what to expect. Somebody who understands that all foods aren't the same to the body, that by crafting a prescription, which might differ from person to person, which does differ from person to person, that we can make weight loss easier while at the same time being there to support you know the personal, the psychological and emotional needs that we all have as we're confronting a chronic disease. And then be sure to bring in whatever social support you can. If you can get your family, even if you're the one person with obesity in your family, although oftentimes that's not the case, but let's say you are. Eating healthy is going to help everybody in the family. It'll help the lean child avoid a problem later in life. It might help, avoid a spouse who is lean from developing cardiovascular disease, because there's a lot of heart disease and cancer among people who are lean. And we know diet is a major contributor to both of those conditions. So get social support, do it together as a family. And I think that, and then ultimately, let's all work together to try to detoxify the environment. We need to vote with the fork by just buying healthy foods. We can get the food industry to make more of them. And vote with the ballot for politicians who are going to recognize that a healthy food supply, rather than unbridled, you know, Wild West capitalism, where anything goes, uh, which is not how capitalism applies in many other areas in this country, that that makes no sense in terms of our most important health problem, diet-related disease.
3: Well, David, it's really been a pleasure having you uh, on with us today, and uh, I I just can't thank you enough. So interesting to talk to you all the time, and uh, thank you for including me in the carbohydrate insulin model paper. Um, I was honored to participate in that. I hope we can have you back at some point in the near future. Thanks, Lou.
0: You've been a, a great colleague and friend, and I look forward to continuing to collaborate and talk.
2: Thanks so much, Dr. Ludwig. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for listening to Weight Matters. We hope you've
1: enjoyed this episode. To learn more about how Dr. Saunders and Dr. Aroni are working to transform specialized treatments for chronic conditions through the best in medical science and advanced technologies, visit intelehealthco backslash podcast. And be sure to follow, rate, and review this show wherever you listen to podcasts.